So for those uh, who are online with us, um, I'm trying to follow along here. So if you if you got a prayer request, feel free to share it. Uh, believe it or not, I'm actually I'm watching you all watch us, or I guess listen to us, or the videos got an issue or something. I don't know, but anyway, um, yeah, praise God. So, <clears throat> Amen. Thank you for praying, Ed. Um, <clears throat> I know there are several in our community today who are uh, mourning the loss of loved ones, uh, and that's. Yeah, never a good time for that. Never a good time for that. So we want to keep them in our prayers for sure. Uh, ask you if you would to uh, to join me uh, even now as we pray together. Lord, I ask that you would speak today just as Ed prayed. Lord, but we also want to keep in mind those who can't gather yet uh, because of health or because of family problems or issues or what's keeping them away, Lord, just ask that you would, uh, you would lead, guide, direct us in all our ways, we love you. Amen. Amen. Oh, don't need that. Today is uh, faith in the battle. Uh, it's, it's interesting, funny, what have you, that uh, everything that comes in this, as we've been working our way through uh, the book of Genesis, how it has, uh, actually, it, where we are is actually where we should be, I think, in a lot of, not in a lot of ways. Um, these last few weeks have been exhausting. Uh, to me personally, in, in a lot of ways. I don't know if it's about the election or uh, the COVID stuff. I don't know what it is, but the last few weeks have really been uh, exhausting to me, to me personally. I'm not saying this to, you know, to whatever, but um, I, just, I know that a lot of us are tired of fighting. They're tired of, tired of being tired, tired of, uh, tired of all of that, and, and tired of defending ourselves, even if defending ourselves is just in our own head because People seem to assume that they know what I think, and I half the time don't even know what I think, much less okay, anybody else. Um, it's been building up for weeks and weeks, and then, I don't know if it was Monday or Tuesday, but one of those days, I just said, you know, enough's enough. But turn off the TV, turn off the, the social media, turn it all off, and just like, it's not adding to my life at this point. I'm done with all this craziness. Um, then I realized that it was uh, Veterans Day, this is the day we normally, we typically honor veterans on the Sunday before Veterans Day. And um, the day when we remember and we show appreciation to, to men and women who served and spouses who allowed them to serve. And, and one thing that, that came back to me again and again was, uh, was how a, a phrase that's often we've, we've said, or if you're a veteran, you may have said, or your family have said to you, that a part of them never came back or he left a part of him over there, or something to that effect, right? Uh, and, and what we, I, I've never experienced that emotion, right? Uh, but I have in, in some ways, and, and I think that a lot of it is because of we, we, we leave ourselves part over there because we give ourselves so much to the conflict. We give so much of ourselves to the struggle that we're in that when it's over, we actually lose a part of ourselves. Um, I don't know if that's, where you are, but conflict is a reality in our lives. We talked about this uh, the last couple of weeks, right? That, that some conflicts you can choose, and some are some you have to go through. Uh, some you can choose to nope. I'm not. That's not. I, I say often that that's not my ditch to die in, right? That I'm not going to make that my battle. Uh, but some of them. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you have to deal with whatever it is before you. Um, so how do we keep from losing our faith in conflict? 
how do we keep from leaving our faith behind? Because I've heard it said that, that many veterans have said that, you know, I, I lost faith in God when, in war. Like, the, that's where I lost it. Or some have said that's where I found it, right? So, so there, it's possible to leave part of you behind in conflict, and what we don't want to do is, is leave our faith behind. So how do we remain faithful in the, in the reality of conflict that's in our lives? Because we all have conflict. We're dealing with it on a daily basis. I don't mean going to war because I don't expect anyone to invade Rock Hall anytime soon. Uh, although if it does, I think we'd be prepared <laughs> in some way. But, but I mean the conflict in our, in our lives, in our, in our homes, uh, at work, with our neighbors, conflict with our brother and sister in Christ, uh, conflict with people who voted the wrong way <laughs> or, you know, as determined by me, right? Uh, Many of us feel like we're in a battle these days because our culture has got us feeling like we're on the edge all the time. So my goal today is to help us to be faithful in conflict in the midst of it. Genesis, as you know, began with God revealing himself in, in creation, right? Uh, the goodness of creation. God revealed himself and how things were made good. All things were made good, right? And eventually... Uh, God would make man and woman and make them his, to be his emissary, to be his representatives, to be his stewards here of creation. That was our responsibility. That was our task. But instead, we chose instead not to represent him, but to represent ourselves. Sin entered in with Adam's fall, right? That's the way we all understand it. And in that fall came this problem of sin that we all, you and I, get to deal with on a daily basis. Uh, we a problem that we've fought against, humanity has fought against ever since. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, was the, took out the, his battle with sin. Uh, he took it out on his brother and killed him, the first death as a result of sin, but certainly not the last, right? The world grew more and more to become led by sin and the effects of sin, so much so that, that God brought judgment on the whole earth through a flood, saving, rescuing Noah and his sons and his family in order to restart, reset creation, right? Through a faithful man. But sin continued. Sin continued, and, and fresh off the experience of a deliverance by the flood, the, the, the ancestors of Noah and his family sought to build a tower to God that if we can just get God to come down here and live with us, then, then we don't have to worry about things. Only God said, no, that's not my plan. That's not my plan to come and rescue you like that. You're not going to be able to control me to get me to come whenever you want like that. So instead, God scattered the people. But God did have a plan to rescue, to save, to redeem humanity. And that plan was going to look a little different than what humanity had created. See, God was going to take a man from nowhere with his wife from nowhere and make them into a nation. He's going to take a man or a woman without heirs and make them be a nation, be a people that he had built. God called Abram to go and occupy a land, land that he's given him, that he promised, that he'd make him in his name great, that he blessed the world through him. Abram, having nothing, being promised everything, he did just what we would do, gather up everything you do have and take with you, Right? Took all his possessions, he took his family with him, took, all his, took, every, took what he had with him. Instead of just going like God had called him, although he went, we give him credit for that. His regard for his stuff led to trouble, right? 
led him to trouble. He got to, the, he got to where God sent him, and he said, no, this isn't going to work. And so he went somewhere else. And along the way, his love for his stuff led him to trouble. That trouble, though, eventually would lead him to an altar where he surrendered to God. Where everything changed at the altar. Where he began to live into God's promise. He accepted God's promise for what it actually was. A promise. He, believed, he began to live into it, and everything changed. And it was just in time, because, because Abram was about to enter into a battle that the world had never seen before. Actually, the first battle, actually, the first war began right here at this time. Uh, I think it's, it's appropriate or, or humorous that how God would, would lead us to this text on Veterans Day. But uh, praise God for it, because that's just the way it worked out. So today we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 14. Um, and in this text is, uh, and I'm going to read part of it, is exactly why some of you start that read the Bible through in a year thing. You know, you've always started and you don't finish it. Today is one of those texts why you don't finish it. Um, today is one of those passages of Scripture of why you stopped. Um, so anyway, here we go. And I'm going to read uh, Genesis chapter 14, 1 through 11. And just as I do oftentimes, uh, confidently and swiftly. Uh, <laughs> at that time, in verse 1, starting in chapter 14 of Genesis. At that time when Amphrel was king of Shinar, Ariot king of Elisar, Keterlomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera king of Sodom, Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, Shemember king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, it is Zor, that is Zor. All these kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the valley, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years they had been subject to Keterlomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, this was after they rebelled, right? In the 14th year, Keterlomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated a whole bunch of people. <laughs> Then on their way back from war, in verse 7. Say, I'm not going to read those names because, I, frankly, it's hard to even go fast and confidently through them. And they're never anywhere else in Scripture. So we're just going to not skip them because they're there and they're important. But he defeated many people in surrounding nations. Then on their way back, he went to Enmishra, that is Kadesh. And they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hezazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Ketelomar, king of Elam, the king the, uh, T, king of Goyim, A, king of Shinar, and A, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. Okay. So what's going on here? These are basically city-states. If you've seen any uh, you know, ancient, a movie set in ancient times, in the pre-1000, pre-1100s, you know, any time in that period, you see that they're like uh, a big house surrounded by a bunch of little huts, and a big house has got a, a wall around it. That's a city-state. It, this man owns all the land around it, and he makes himself king, and everybody around it are his subjects, right? And that's, So that's what we have, is all these city-states are all under the thumb of the one largest city-state, or one of the larger ones, King Keterlomar, the king of Elam. 
Now, just to kind of give you where, let you know where this is, because I think it's important. The king of Elam, he was, this is in the mountains of modern-day Iraq, near the, the Persian Gulf. He was the ancestor of Shem. So that's where the, the, ancestor, the, the Shem and his people settled. So here we have the first war, actually a civil war, right, being fought in what we know of as modern-day Iraq and Iran. Hmm. Things really haven't changed that much, right? Things really haven't changed that much. So, so King K, we'll call him, King K and his allies, they go out to war, and when they come back, they're, they're faced with all these, all, all their subjects, right, have risen up against them, and they're all in the valley, they've drawn battle lines, and they're ready to fight. Now, King K and his allies, they're, they're fresh off of battle, right? They're, they're tested. And all of these people who have had enough, they think now is the time to stand up against them. Well, the problem is, it's not the right time to stand up against him. And he routes them. They scatter, right? It tells the story of how they just scattered to the winds. He plunders the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. Plundered them, took all their wealth, and he's on his way home. And then in verse 12, if, if this was a movie, and it has been a movie, but, and, but I, don't, I didn't pay attention to it to, pay it, to notice that, that at this point in the story is when the the music would start to build, like the suspenseful music would start to dun-dun-dun-dun. Where you at, Ed? So it would, it would play right in here, verse 12, because it says, verse 12 says, they also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Oh, still not there. Anyway, didn't know who he was messing with, Abram. It didn't know who Lot was. He didn't know who Lot was. See, Lot, Lot was the nephew of Abram. We know that. But, but King K just thought he was a guy living in a tent outside of Sodom. So I'm going to take, take the people of Sodom. They're going to be my servants, my slaves, along with all the wealth. I'm taking everything they got. I'm taking them too. He didn't know that Lot's uncle had been promised by God, the creator of the universe, that actually... Actually, I'm going to bless him so that he's a blessing. And anybody who curses him, I'm going to curse. So he didn't know that that, that that was on the line. Lot knew it. Lot knew. Abram knew. Abram knew that God had called him to live out his promise for the world, to the world. Abram had come to know that it was no longer about him. It was no longer about him and, and his but everything was about fulfilling God's promise to be a blessing. God's promise had become Abram's purpose, his motivation, his driving force, and everything he did was God's promise. Abram was rightly motivated. He had developed a simple faith, as we talked about a few weeks ago. A simple, boil-it-all-down kind of faith is what Abram now had. That a singular purpose was to glorify God was to do what God had called him to do, to bless others. He'd been blessed. Abram knew he'd been blessed. He could look around and see all the people that had followed him, all the livestock, all the wealth. That, that wasn't because of him, because he knew that he, I had run from God, he said. I had given up my, my covenant with my wife, and yet God had blessed me. Abram knew that. He knew he was blessed. He knew that God had a purpose for him. 
And he was beginning to see how, his, how God's blessing on him would actually affect everybody else. He was beginning to see that. The Apostle Paul teaches us, the church, this very same principle. And, and to this letter in the church in Philippi, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. See, the faithful, the faithful fight for others. Faithful people fight for others, for the weak, for the down and out. I mean, there was a time in Abram's life when everything was about him, right? When he gave up everything to keep himself in position, for sure. But now, because his faith is growing, he's beginning to see, to live into a reality where, where everyone actually is a part of God's plan. That, that it's not about Abram anymore. He's here to bring glory to God, and so is everyone else. And that means sometimes I stand up for the weak. I stand up for those in need, that the whole world would be blessed through Abram, especially those he loves. I mean, there's, there's nothing that will get you more excited than when something happens to a loved one. I mean, you, you, I remember when I, used, when I first started coaching, I would watch parents who would come to the stands, and, and they would just act a fool. I mean, they would be yelling and screaming, and they'd get down at the fence, and they'd start shaking the fence. And I was like, what are you doing? You are just, you've completely lost your mind. And then one day, my son was on the field. And everything changed. I mean, you're laughing at me, but the, the reality is that, yes, I was embarrassing. My son would come up and say, Dad, you've got to calm down. Like, I was, I would even, I would talk to myself, like, stop, Gary, stop. And I, I couldn't control it. I would just, he would fall down or somebody would hit him and he'd fall and he'd go down and I'd be like, and I would, like, I'm, I'm ready to go. Fortunately, he never needed my help, Right? He would just get up a few seconds later and brush it off. And, but every time he went down, every time he was hit, or every time he had, had something wrong, I wanted to run. I was ready to go, right? I mean, parents, you know that. Grandparents, that's the way we are. It was different for Lot. Lot didn't, couldn't get up. He was being literally drug away. Literally being drug away to become a slave. Fortunately for him, Uncle Abraham was faithful. And Uncle Abraham was watching. He'd found out. That's where we are in verse 13 and 16. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew. Why are they calling that? There's no Jews. Like, where did this language come from? Right? I mean, that's the first thing that came to my head. Is Why, why are they calling him Hebrew? He's not a Hebrew yet. We don't even know anything about Hebrew. Well, fortunately, we do. The, the word Hebrew means a traveler. So my question would be, what are you known for? Like He was already known to be a traveler. Uh, do people have a nickname for you? I know if you're from Rock Hall, I know they do. <laughs> Does that nickname glorify God? Are becoming known for something that glorifies God? Anyway, now Abram was living near the trees of Mamre and, and the Amorite and the brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. See, the faithful that Abram was, he was prepared. He was prepared for action. 
Abram had been blessed by God to be a blessing to others, right? He didn't just take that and say, all right, God's going to be good to me. No, he said, God's going to be good to me for a purpose, so that I might be God's extension to extend God's blessing to others. Abram believed that. And more than just believing it, more than just accepting it, he trusted it. He actually began to work as though it were real, it were true. He made plans to be a blessing to others. He reoriented his life to the point that he would train up 318 men, train them ahead of time to be a resource of help for others, to be there when others needed it. 318 men. Now, Lot didn't have any kids. I mean, Abram didn't have any kids. So these were his servants. These were the people who worked with him or for him or whatever. These were, these were his crew, right? These were the folks who were with him, 318 of them. He was prepared for action. Not only was he prepared, though, he had a strategy to get his nephew back safely. We see that in the text, too. Scripture tells us that he, he would attack at night. What, what significance does that have? Well, think about it. These, these were battle-hardened men. They'd been battling for, it sounds like, a couple of years. They're on their way home. They, they come across these bunch of little city-states who are there, like, kind of puffing their chests up. And so they say, okay, let's fight. And as soon as they do, they all run to the hills, right? So these battle-tested, hardy men are on their way home with all the plunder that they've gathered from these towns of these folks who, who scattered like the wind. They're on their way home, and they're camped at night. So what do you think they're doing? They're telling stories, right? They're telling stories about what they've been through, about how these crazy bunch of yahoos thought they were actually going to fight us, and then they ran, right? They're, they're having a party. They're around the campfire with maybe, probably, I'm sure, too many bottles of wine. And in that moment, 318 men surround them from all directions because Abram has divided his forces to attack them from every direction. And while they're half asleep or too drunk to do anything to defend themselves, he routes them, defeats them all, leaves them on the run. They leave behind all their wealth, all the plunder that they had taken, all the people that they had taken, and Abram takes it all. Abram takes it all. He, had, he was prepared, and he had a plan. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what struggle that you're dealing with today, right? But I do know that life is full of struggles. And the scriptures teach us the source of and how to deal with our struggles. Ephesians 6, verse 12 tells us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Scripture teaches us that our, our principal struggle is a spiritual one. So how do we prepare for a spiritual battle? With spiritual resources. That's how we prepare. See, you're, you may, you may, the world, it may look like you're struggling with your neighbor or your spouse or your kids or your work. But the real struggle is a spiritual one. A struggle to hold on to our faith no matter what comes, it's what comes our way. That's the struggle. It's to actually hold on to our faith in the midst of the difficulty. To believe that God is going to see us through no matter what we experience. To believe that God's at work no matter how bad things look. That's the reality of it. Ephesians 6, 13 to 17 explains how do we do this? 
How do we prepare for the struggle? He says, Paul wrote, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. Stand firm with the belt of truth around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the peace of God. In addition, take up the shield of faith that can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. See, we're given spiritual, spiritual resources to battle the spiritual battle that we're in, to fight the spiritual battle that we find ourselves, to prepare for that. I mean, your struggle with, with who wins or who won the election is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle because, because we struggle with who we're trusting by being able to trust someone that we can't see. Your struggle with your spouse not respecting you is a spiritual battle. Because maybe you deserve respect or, or maybe because of the way you've tried to earn it. Your struggle over temptation is a spiritual battle over Who's the Lord of your life? That's what ultimately all of these spiritual struggles are. It's about who is who's sovereign over my life? Who's in control? Is it God or is it me? Who's my Lord? That's what ultimately what all of these battles, these spiritual struggles come down to. It's a question. Our enemy is trying to show us that, our, that we can't trust our Lord Jesus. We can't trust God's plan. Christians are called to prepare for that. And that happens to train ourselves, as Paul said, to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. To prepare. What does that preparation look like? Prayer. Being people of prayer. To study God's Word. Connecting our lives with other Christians. Planning to fight. Right? Because it's, the struggle's going to come. It's not, it's not like, it's, how, how good are things going? No, it's not about how good things are going. The, the reality is that, that times are, hard times are coming. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to hang on to your faith, no matter what life brings its way, your way? Abraham knew his calling, and he was ready for the task, no matter what God brought before him. He was ready to walk into it when the time came, and he was faithful. Abram was faithful. And here's where the, the last few verses of this story is where I think are the, the most fantastic parts of this passage. In Genesis 14, 17 to 24. Oh, where am I at? I've got the slides are mixed up, but anyway. Yeah, 17 to 24. Abram had returned from defeating King Kedalarmer, the kings allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him. I'm in verse 17. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, which is the king's valley. So picture it now. Abram's coming back, and he's got all the people, all the stuff. Everybody's carrying stuff because they got everything that the, the other kings left behind. Here he comes back, right? And who's the first person to meet him? First one to meet him is the king of Sodom, the king who had just been defeated, king who had just lost everything. And here comes some guy walking down the road, and he's carrying all my stuff. Right? You can kind of picture it that way. Does he, does he, we expect him to show up with kind of hat in hand, right? You expect him to be kind of humble, right? We'll see. 
Verse 18 tells us the other king that showed up. Then King Melchizedek, king of Salam, brought, our, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Who, who's this King Melchizedek? We haven't heard about him before. You're right, we never heard it. This is actually the only time in Scripture that he ever appears. This is it. There's, there's a lot going on about King Melchizedek, and, and I really wanted, I, really, I would love for you to get into it and study it. So I would encourage you, get a study Bible out this week and, and go to Genesis chapter 14, go to Hebrews chapter 7, and study about King Melchizedek. There's, I mean, it is fascinating. It's fast. It really is. If you don't have a study Bible, if you can get online, go to blueletterbible.org and study those two passages that are in there. That It talks, a, both of those chapters, the one we're in, Genesis 14, Hebrews chapter 7, talk a lot about Melchizedek and, and just, oh, uh, yeah. What I will say today is that he hasn't mentioned, been mentioned before. He won't be mentioned again, really. I mean, he doesn't show up in Scripture anywhere else. They talk about him, but he's not present, right? But, but real quick, a couple of things. First to notice about him. Is, is where he's from. Scripture tells us that he's from Salam, which we, we actually know is Jerusalem, right? It's, Jew, it's a, a, an Egyptian name of a town, right? That it means the, the city of God or the city of peace. So a man comes from the city of peace, and what's his name? Melchizedek, which means the king of righteousness. Okay? King of righteousness comes from the city of peace. And what's he do? He, he brings, it, Scripture says, he, he brought out bread and wine. So here's a man that's never shown up in Scripture before. that just kind of pops into our story. And he shows up and they tell us that he's, he's from the city of peace. His name is the king of righteousness. And he brings bread and wine. Sound like anybody else we know about in Scripture? I mean, it's like right here in Genesis chapter 14 that, that, that God gives a glimpse of what Jesus is going to be, right? And it's, or not, that he already was. And maybe that might be some of your study in Melchizedek. You might discover some pretty fascinating things about what people have studied the scripture, what they think, who they think he is. But it's fascinating, and I'm going to leave it there for you because it really is, and there's a lot in there. But, but just the fact that, that God gives us a picture of Jesus in this text is pretty powerful. And what does he do? We have two kings, right? One from Sodom and one from peace. This one from peace says, I bless you, Abram. Blessed be Abram, the God of most high, by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. He showed up and blessed him. And then what's Abram's response? It's to give him a tithe, to give him 10% of all that he'd say, wow, thank you for blessing me. He doesn't say, Abram, it looks like you've got too much stuff there to deal with. It looks, how are you going to keep track of all that stuff, Abram? Maybe, how about this? How about I trade you some land for it? No, he doesn't do that. How about I, how about I trade you some, some, ant, some livestock for all that gold you got? I need some servants. How about I have you trade me for some of those? He doesn't do any of that. Instead, what he says is, I want to bless you. He shows up and gives. He shows up, and that's another way. I see this as a, a picture of Christ in our lives, that, that Jesus shows up into our lives out of nowhere sometimes to give us life, to bless us. Not, not to ask anything from us, but to give, to give. 
the other king, the king of Sodom, the king that was from the place that was known for its worldliness, what does he do? Couldn't be more different. His first words, give me. <laughs> give me. Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Give me my people back and you can keep the stuff. He's making a deal. He's lost everything and he's telling the man who now rightly owns everything, hey, give me back my stuff. Give me back my people. Isn't that what the world does to us? Tells us, calls us to give, 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 give. Give me you. The world calls us to do that. Where the one from peace, the man of righteousness, comes to bless. So Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I've sworn an oath to, get this, the Lord, God most high, creator of the earth. Where do you hear that? He's never used that language before. Well, that, that other guy just used it. And he said, I like that. I'm going to go with that. Lord God, most high, creator of the heaven and earth. I'm using that from now on, Abram says. See, Abram finishes just where he'd begun this whole thing, in faith. He finished, and that's for us too, that, that we should finish whatever struggles we're in the same way we're, we begin them, in, our, in faith, rich in faith. Allow the struggle to actually build our faith as we depend on God throughout it. Trusting His promise, Abram grew. Trusting that God was His deliverer, His strength, His victor. He actually grew in His faith. Abram had seen God at work now again and again and again. He was able to trust Him no matter what. He was confident that in this, God will be faithful. And that's what the faithful do. The faithful bear witness in the midst of conflict. The faithful will always show, show God in conflict. I, I, don't, I don't know of a place where it's more difficult to be faithful than in victory, like Abram was. Came back from from battle and you know he did what he went out to do he was came back with all this bounty in victory it's hard to be faithful because people tell you how great of a job you did i mean you can imagine everybody's cheering abram 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 as he walks into town and he's bound to be thinking wow i didn't i thought it was a big deal but i didn't think he's tempted to go there right to think it is that he did do something he's tempted and that's the real struggle i think People telling how great a job he did. When, when for us, as followers of Jesus, we know that, that it's not us who did, but Christ who did in me. That's the miracle. <laughs> that, that I'm able to do anything worthwhile, anything eternally significant. That's the real miracle in all this. Christians, we need to see that victory isn't a time to say, look what I did, but rather what Christ is doing or what he has done through me or in me but also in defeat. Also in defeat, we need to accept that God is doing something in me instead of pointing blame and, and shifting responsibility. Doesn't matter which side you're on, the winning side or the losing side. The truth is, it's not about you. The truth is that we live for one who sits on a higher throne that we can only reach because he lifts us up. That's the truth of it all. We serve a king who's already won. We serve someone who's already won the battle. Several weeks ago, I, I, uh, 
had a wedding, and so I recorded a, a football game. <clears throat> and um, I, I came. I was on my way home, and I was I was excited to get home and watch it. I didn't know who had won. I just didn't listen to the radio or anything else because I didn't want to hear. And about halfway home, my brother-in-law sent me to a text. Sent me a text message. What a game! And I'm thinking, uh-oh. And about that time, I got six, seven messages from all you all telling me, wow, that was a great game, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, uh, why didn't I think to turn off my phone? Right? Not that people didn't mean well, but, but I knew that, it, all right, they, I knew who won. So I still wanted to get home and watch it, right? But it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same because I knew the end. I, I was excited, and I, so I was excited in a different way. I was excited because I got to see it play out. I knew the end. So in the third quarter, instead of like this, I was like, I was leaning into it, right? I was excited. I was like, I can't wait to see how we work this out because I know the end, right? So while for a little while I thought you had ruined it for me, in reality, it it just, it, it was fun then to live into, to experience the victory that was already had happened, right? You see the parallel here? Our Christian life becomes a joy. Because we are living into something that's already been won. I mean, with the bumps and the, the hiccups and all the problems that we face in life, it's already, it's, already been, it's already been victorious and there's already been a champion over it all. We just get to see how it plays out. That should make us excited to be a part of what God is doing. Even though we can't get our minds around what is happening. Abram, he says in verse 23, he says, I'll accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread, not a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. He wanted every, the world to know that when they saw Abram, they know everything he got came from God. Everything he got came from the Lord. That, that desire to want credit is a struggle for us. That desire to want, to want somebody to applaud us is temptation. There's no quicker way to ruin your witness to the world and be either a, a sour loser or a poor winner. People look at you and just, oh, they get turned off by it all. Verse 24, he says, I don't want anything from you. I want only what comes from God. But in verse 24, the last verse, I think, is one we need to take home with us. Verse 24, he does something. He says, I don't want anything, but these men who fought alongside of me, who haven't been promised anything from God like I have? He says in verse 24, they can keep what they want. They can keep what they want. It's theirs. They earned it in battle. But for me, I don't want it. See, I don't know if you're seeing it here, but Abram didn't hold the people who didn't believe what he believed to his standard. He didn't hold them to the, to the, to the same reality that he would, had determined to live his life by. He said, I'm living my life for God, nobody else. But what you do, that's up to you. Now, for us as Christians, how does that apply? We need to hold to righteousness. We need to hold to it tightly, not let it go. To seek to be faithful in all things, absolutely. But for our neighbor, our brother, our sister who doesn't know Christ, we, we, we need to not try so hard to hold them to our standard because they're not living for it. They haven't been equipped for it. They haven't been prepared for it. They haven't planned for it like we have. 
So, so we need to have faith in the battle, that God is at work, and we're living into the victory that he has won. So how do we have faith in the battle? How do we grow that? How do we develop that faith? Scripture told us. We grow. We invest in prayer. We connect with other Christians. We study God's word. We help those in need. We serve those who don't deserve it. Imagine what it would be like if, if, if we were a church who fought like we knew who wins. Imagine, imagine if we were a church that, that if we knew the lives that God could change, imagine how we would approach our neighbor. If we knew that God, he's winning. How, how we would approach marriages that are in trouble. If we knew that God was winning, how would we come to help them, to bless other marriages? How would we, how would we approach businesses that if we knew that if they knew that God was winning, that they were just that they could serve a winning God, a victorious God, how would that change the way we approach all of these different relationships that we have in our lives? Would we be more willing to share? Would we be more willing to, like Abram, to, to not hold you to a standard, but invite you to it all at the same time? I believe we would. You see, at one time, we were all desperate in need, like Lot. Couldn't do anything to save himself. Many of us have experienced that being rescued from a, a problem in life. Most of us, I believe, have probably experienced being rescued eternally by Christ. Having experienced that, having experienced a victory that is held in God through Christ, faith in Christ, how does that affect the way we face the struggles in our life? Do we use them as opportunities to grow our faith or leave our faith behind? I pray that this week, as you face struggles in your life, that you would actually approach them Remembering that it's basically you're in the third quarter and you know who wins. <laughs> you're always watching the third quarter. You already know the victory. That you'd be able to hold on to your faith and let your faith grow in the midst of your struggle. I'd like to pray for you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, God, that, that you are faithful. We thank you, Lord, that, that your goodness goes before you. We thank you that you have a plan for our lives that you have a hope for us held in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that your, that your goodness knows no bounds, that your grace is rich and deep. God, that you have, you have called us to prepare. You've called us to prepare for a battle that you have already won. <laughs> so, Lord, let us approach it as victors, that we wouldn't get caught up in the in the setbacks, that we wouldn't lose our minds when another team scores a touchdown, that we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't celebrate too hard when good things happen because we know the victory is yours and yours alone. Lord God, use us as your people here in this place at this time as a redeemed family of God. We love you. Amen. Amen. Amen.